everybody. How's it going? Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you up to date with what's going on in Israel so you can feel connected and informed. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, and I can't say as always anymore because he missed last episode, but he's back as usually, almost always, with my co-host, Alan Goldman. I was there in spirit, Mike. I know, I know. I just missed you. Uh... But uh, I, I, I think it came out okay. I was, I was lonely, but I made it. Uh, we are now... You didn't have 60 Rova students. That's true. Not quite 60, but, uh, but uh, it, it is a great group. Uh, it really, they really are terrific. So it went well. Uh, today we are sitting overlooking the city of Bethlehem. It's actually kind of a densely packed view of buildings. And Bejala and Gilo. Right. Well, we can see Gilo to our left. We're looking ahead. We should take a picture of, uh, in, the, in the distance you can see uh, the hills of Jordan, even though it's a little hazy. And today we actually wanted to talk a little bit about this neighborhood that we live in. By the way, that's, isn't that Herodian? Yep. Um, yeah. So with a flat top. Here come old flat top. He come grooving up slowly. Uh, uh, we wanted to talk. We wanted to zoom out a little bit before we actually talk about Israel and talk about the region. I think most people are utterly perplexed by the diplomatic uh, brouhaha, where many Arab states are cutting off their relationship to. Do you say Qatar or Qatar? Well, I say Qatar, and you say Qatar. Yeah. I, think, I think I think I'm probably wrong. I'm, the, I'm on the wronger end. We're probably neither of us pronouncing it totally right, but I'm probably wronger, if that's a word. Uh, and the shutting down of uh, the 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 line of Al Jazeera throughout much of the Arab world now. I think when most people in the West hear that, they're very confused. And uh, well, one of the reasons confused is because often the way that the Islamic um, nation states whatever in the in the world have been sold is it's a sunni shiite split and, and qatar is a is a sunni state so why would all these sunni states be cutting off with it so it just goes to show you like we try and say in class it's not so simple right what we do is we we, we have our shorthands where we go oh i get it i get why isis made an attack on the iranian parliament i get why uh, why? ISIS why? Uh, attacked Khomeini's tomb because, bless you, because they are Sunni and, bec- and, and this people le- and, and the Iranians are Shia. Although people usually leave out because ISIS is Arab and Iran is Persian. They're not Arabs. Right. People usually leave that out, I think, when they, when they shorthand it. And, we're, and we tried to, after 9-11, shorthand the complexity of the Middle East into all Sunni or Shia. But now we see, wow, look at this. There's this whole coalition led by Saudi Arabia against Qatar, or Qatar, which is very impenetrable to most Western minds. But I thought they were Sunni. I thought they all get along. And in fact, they don't. They are individual states that operate within their own interests. Um, and Qatar, that's one of the things that angers um, the rest of the, the, that little region, meaning particularly Saudi Arabia and then their, these days, allies, Egypt and Jordan and, those, and the smaller states of Bahrain and the Emirates because Qatar does not tow the Saudi line. They, have the, they develop their own foreign policy. And part of that foreign policy is, um, 
is was the launching of the Al Jazeera ne- network, which is an interesting, interesting news network. I was explaining to my wife last night how I often watch it when I'm in Europe because it's uh, very popular in the hotels and sometimes the only English language news station. And it's really not a bad news station. I mean, if you take, for instance, every news station has its agenda and you understand they have an agenda, they're actually a pretty good station in that sense. Well, the one cut out of Saudi Arabia is not the English one. I don't know how the Arab one... I don't know if the Arab one... I think, though, it's at least... To me, it was always interesting because it's an attempt from an Arab country to create something along journalistic standards. Right. Journalistic standards, which which actually presents news and that can be contrary to the governments. And in this sense, you're talking about governments that are very autocratic. And so that that has been um, even pushing during the Arab Spring a democratic line. Um, And that can be very challenging to to um, autocrats, which is what most of the region is developed in. And on the other hand, which is like complete sounding opposite, is their friendship towards Iran. <laughs> well, it's an openness. It, it, I, I, it feels opposite a little bit, but I think it comes from that same perspective of openness, that we're not going to allow American military bases in, in Qatar, and we're going to have business openly and diplomacy pretty openly with Iran. So they're stepping outside, what, and, and also they're upstarts. They came up in the 90s when the Saudis had their, you know, with the big shots, they came up with their natural gas upstart in the mid-90s and became like this super wealthy independent power where they don't need, you know, big uncle Saudi Arabia. And not only that, it's breaking the Saudi Arabia economy. We know the Saudi Arabia economy, which is almost completely based on oil, is in the tank. <laughs> uh, literally. Pun intended? Yes, pun intended, right? And... Uh, and that's one of the challenges to it, the, the natural gas uh, economies. So in a, in a lot of ways, Qatar... Is you say gas. Gas. I'm from Philly. Is that a Philly thing? I thought it was just like an old Jewish man thing. No, no, it's Philly. It's oh, really? Philly and Baltimore. And Baltimore. Huh. Yeah. Uh, like water. Um, so... Oh, that's why you say it wrong. <laughs> exactly. So um, it, they're, they're, it's a very interesting development. And, and, of course, no one can understand the president of America's response considering that America has the most important airfield base in the Middle East in Qatar which is the forefront command central for the fight against terror so uh, no I think it's understandable he's trying to get he's trying to get people to appreciate his speech in Saudi Arabia and say that this he's trying to take whatever it's it, it, it makes sense but it's not strategic in any meaningful way Whatever. Let's not get into. It. Let's not go down that rabbit hole of. Right. Just to, just to say that there there are a lot of competing and conflicting interests in the Middle East, and that's the point I think that go beyond just our normalized way of seeing things Sunni Shiai or Israel Arab. Or and it's not that it's not that. By the way, it's not that he's totally wrong that that there are Qataris supporting terrorism, but there are of course also Saudis supporting terrorism, and this is a broad regional problem. You have leaders of state. Uh, disavowing extremism while their country, pe- rich people in their country are supporting extremism is a broad problem, including Qatar and Saudi Arabia, uh, as opposed to Iran, where the leaders are more or less supporting it. But you have you have these financial, political, also tribal differences that we have a difficult time wrapping our head around. And and I think what happens is when people talk about Israel, they don't talk about the neighborhood. And I don't want to go all Mr. Rogers on you, but your decisions are going to be, in, in to a large extent, 
in relation to have to be made in relation to the people that you're making decision with. Yeah, I think I think when people look at, at Israel Palestine, they reduce it to an overly simple equation. Just like in the Middle East, they oversimplify to Sunni Shia. Israel Palestine, they also reduce to a simple paradigm, which is a very simple equation. They look at the whole conflict through the lens of power versus powerlessness. Israel has the power, and so we will treat it accordingly, and the Palestinians do not have power, so we will treat it accordingly. Now, I mean, uh, Matt, what's it, Matt, um, who wrote that article on the tablet, which was really a turning point article uh, about this, about this paradigm of how people are looking at it. Uh, uh, Mati Friedman. Friedman. Thank you, Mati Friedman. Um, right back in the tablet, we'll, we'll attach it to this. Because uh, it's a it's a key and and he, he really yeah we'll attach it to it tech Al. we yeah we'll do all that exactly uh, it's the royal we it's the royal. that's what happens when you're the boss <laughs> we will do it Michael it's good to be the king <laughs> um, but uh, so the that really he he laid that I think it was 2014 it was an article in the tablet and it still holds up today and I think it even holds up within you know. Why is it important to talk about it now as well? A, one, we are, again, a new presidency, therefore embarking on a new peace process. Um, it's clearly happening, and there are clearly happening, things happening behind the scenes that are not being reported about this new peace process that's going on. And we'll hear about them, I'm sure, soon on one. Uh, number two, um, the, it, it's, uh, new, there was new documents are coming out from the end of the Obama administration which was first reported and exclusive in the Haaretz and the Times of Israel picked it up. I haven't seen if the American papers have picked it up. Probably not because it doesn't fit the paradigm. But that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who well, I think they have not responded to these. Um, well, not when the article came out. Yeah, according to these articles, basically agreed to start the discussion at 67 border borders, including I- I Jerusalem. And... Um, and uh, uh, Abbas basically walked away again. Um, basically, the Kerry framework, Netanyahu said, okay, let's give it a shot. Abbas said no. And then the second t- second round uh, didn't, didn't even respond. As, as per usual to Abbas, right. when he doesn't like it, just doesn't respond. And then Kerry, at the end of his, we all remember this famous speech, 30-minute speech at the end of, his, of the, of the uh, you know, their term, when he goes and basically blames Israel for it all falling apart. It's like, what, what's going on here? Like, it, 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 clearly we see these documents that are saying that uh, Netanyahu was going pretty far, for, especially for Netanyahu, everybody, the perception of Netanyahu. And yet, once again, Israel gets blamed for being the, the, the walking out or, or being the obstacle to peace. I think that's the word we're looking for. Well, can, can I defend Kerry? Sure. And I say this with a with a well established bona fides of thinking Kerry's an idiot. <laughs> Is that not politic? My favorite Kerry headline was in the Onion, the satirical newspaper, when he when he launched his peace initiative with Israel Palestine, and the Onion had a headline: "Man who couldn't beat George Bush in two thousand four says he'll resolve the Israel Palestine conflict." Um, so who's who's dumber, Kerry or the Obama for appointing him? Well, I don't want to get into that that much inside baseball, but he appointed him because he wanted Susan Rice, and the Republicans skewered her for 
the remarks that the CIA center had to say on Sunday morning television. And so he, he just tried to slam somebody through that the Senate would approve. And he knew they would all approve Kerry. So there was Kerry. So that's stupid. That's a political decision, not a... So, so small-minded political interest, as you're saying, was the real... Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, politicians, I think, have to do that. But that's that was 2004. And I, at this point, our listeners, I really don't think... Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. That's when he ran for office. It was, uh, it was the second... It was still in the first term of Obama? Doesn't matter. Oh, my gosh. Are we boring people with this? <sighs> this is what happens when you're a politics nerd. Um, no, Clinton. Clinton was. Clinton was the first Secretary of State. But I think she resigned still during Obama's first term. And then it became the Susan Rice thing. Uh, and then it became uh, Kerry. And I, and I, as, as a voter, I thought in 2004, here are my two choices between Bush and Kerry. I can choose between a guy who I think is totally mishandling the war on terror and a guy who is not aware that there's a war on terror. So, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's what it was. So I, I don't have, I, I'm not saying this as a guy who's a huge supporter of John Kerry, but let me be devil's advocate and say... <laughs> Whatever. Let's put aside the psychological analysis. Let's just put aside is he an anti-Semite? All, all those things. You can. We can all conjecture till the cows come home. But if I was devils advocating for him, I would say, look, I'm not getting anywhere with the Palestinians, but I want the Israelis to separate so that they're not ruling, you know, a couple million Palestinians and thereby endangering their character as a democratic state, which is essentially Jewish. And if they don't disengage from the West Bank, then they have the danger of either having to make them all citizens, in which case you'll lose your Jewish character, or ruling over them but not giving them full citizenship rights, in which case you'll lose your democratic character. So whatever, the fact that I'm frustrated and I can't work with Abbas to get a peace deal doesn't take away my responsibility as a friend to Israel to encourage them to work as quickly and as directly as they can to disengage from the West Bank. How's that for a devil's advocate for John Kerry? So that's pretty darn good. I think that that's a very good um, or you know. Yeah, that's all it is because it, it, it does, of course, he did, he achieved the opposite. He angered the Israelis and showed them that here's a guy we shouldn't listen to. Right, which is, which is the continual mistake every time something falls apart and then they go back and they say, Israel, well, you're not doing enough or this or that. So, because it's, it's based on this assumption wherever you hold with, with the, the territories, wherever you hold with settlements, whatever you believe, it's based on the assumption that Israel can decide on its own how to solve this problem. Because we have power. Exactly. And, and that is, I think, the biggest mistake there is out there. Um, it, it's a conflict of two people. When you have a conflict of two people, you need both sides to solve the problem. And if one side is committed to not solving the problem because they feel that that will compromise their strategic goal of retaking the whole land well then what that's how they see solving the problem right they are still committed to the solution which is the one state solution of an arab state and depending on where you are in the palestinian political spectrum your attitude towards what would happen to the jewish inhabitants of the palestinian state ranges from they would be you know citizens with full rights to 
all kinds of other, you know, possibilities that, you know, we've seen in places like the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda. So, so this leaves Israel in a very difficult position and yelling at the powerful one because they have the power is probably the wrong paradigm. It's hard to understand from a Western perspective why the weaker party will not agree to compromise. And from Israel's perspective, I think at least from the citizen perspective, very often the citizens of this country don't feel like we are the power. I know that that's, you know, that can be misperceived and people can say different things, but because but, here's what I, I want to sort of flush that out, elaborate on it. Because we, they'll say, we, we withdrew from Gaza and all we've gotten is is rockets and terror and more consternation. So we, we are in a weaker position. Right. I, th- I think it's a very sharp point. I would say it a little bit differently. I would say we, if it's not that, it may, be, it may be quite that. It may also be that we feel very vulnerable. That within, And that's what terrorism does. That although we have power and we feel we're masters of our destiny, we feel incredibly vulnerable to risk-taking to resolve this problem and a tremendous distrust. Um, and, and, and so there's this feeling that safeguards will have to be met in order for us to do it. That's a good way of saying it. And I think that that idea is so therefore when you feel vulnerable, you don't see the power dynamic the same way as others see the power dynamic. Well, Israelis don't see it in a power dynamic. We see it in in a risk assessment. We understand the risk of absorbing and giving them citizenship and then losing the Jewish character. We understand the risk of absorbing them but not giving them citizenship and then losing our democratic character. And we understand the risk of leaving the West Bank and entirely and then facing a terrorist infrastructure all along our narrow, narrow state. And so our choices are terrible. And I would even, I would even go a little bit further. When often you'll hear almost like a, a medium left, center left kind of position. Okay, so let's, let's get rid of settlements, but we don't necessarily have to withdraw from the West Bank. Um, but that, I think, negates, first of all, a core Zionist idea, which is that settlements create security. Right, the, the whole settlements are part of the defensive nature of the state of Israel, of your borders. That's how you defend your borders. Where you put a settlement is where you really can, can defend yourselves. You know, we saw that all the way a hundred years ago in the in the Finger of the Galilee in 1919 in the Tel Chai settlements, and we even see it today. So to say, okay, let's just get you know pull out of the settlements, but we won't necessarily withdraw militarily, is not a real. Well, that's a, that's a realpolitik insight. In other words, it's not it's not ideological. It's just uvdor pashetach is really say facts, are, or in English we say facts on the ground. So with these facts on the ground, we're we're watching our 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 eastern edge. Without those facts on the ground, we're going to lose control and everything will spin out. Which again, to go back to the Gush Katif and the Gaza Strip, that was the argument of Gush Katif and Gaza Strip, because in many people don't realize that up until the pullout, there were massive rockets at attacks and terrorist attacks against the settlements in Gush Katif. And they were willing to observe it. They themselves said, don't don't take us because that is going to change and that's going to come on Tel Aviv and Steyrot and all those other places. Um, which, of course, is exactly what happened. Um, that's why I think what John Kerry should do, or anyone who, want, who wants to be helpful, is you can disagree with the Israeli logic, but at least absorb it and relate to it. Yeah. Don't pretend that that's not the way Israelis are thinking. Don't pretend 
as so much of the anti-Israel world does, that Israel's enjoying being the boss over people who who are not self-governed. There's, that, that's so disingenuous. And that it's it. And, and here's what's sad: we talk about how complicated it is. It's not that complicated that we didn't just go over it in five to ten minutes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like it's not it's not that complicated. You can understand why Israelis look at their options and say, I can't any of those three options absorbing the West Bank and giving everyone citizenship, absorbing the West Bank and not giving them citizenship, unilateral withdrawal are terrible options. And so Israel says and Israelis say, I guess we'll stick with the status quo. And when they vote they say, What's the alternative? And they vote for the guy whose whole career at this point is based on maintaining a really ugly, nasty, brutal status quo. Brutal is the wrong word. Sounds like I mean something I don't. But I mean, I mean it in the more colloquial sense of that sucks. It's just a rough. It's a rough status quo. But my alternativa is the, is the main Israeli. It, it is one of the most potent Israeli sentences you can hear today. And I think we we t- we turn that to the campus life. Um, that's often ex- the exact problem we get on campus because everybody's looking and say, well, you're talking about Israel has the strongest army in the Middle East. Israel has nuclear power. Israel has X, Y, and Z, the economy. The truth is we have nicer cars, we have nicer lives, we have nicer houses. And so everybody says, well, how can you feel vulnerable? It's not that. You're the power and they're the powerless, so do something about it. Um, and that is not taking into, into the... Into, um, Well, how, you know, how does why does Great Britain feel vulnerable? Why does France feel vulnerable? And why, you know, why, I would why say, lead, why is there such a lead story on a pigua on a terrorist attack that kills seven British people, which is a terrible, terrible thing? But I mean, you know, uh, I, I read an interesting article. I forget where it was, but how many there have been something like ten thousand deaths by gun by handguns in America or by guns in America in two thousand and you know whatever sixteen seventeen you know. Where are the headlines? Where, where, where are they going? But that, that's exactly what terrorism does. That's the whole point of terrorism is to create this sense of vulnerability. And then we build tremendous structures around it to prevent it. Right. Look how much time it takes us and how much money to go fly today because of the whole security structure that it puts around it. Because it hits at that sense of vulnerability. Look, I hate to say it. In Israel, seven dead to terrorism a year. Right. I mean, that's not... It, it, I, it's not the right way to say it. That's a low year. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, let me ask you a different question about talking about this on campus. Let's say you're not in favor of the two-state solution. How do you talk? And, and, and I would argue that in the West, that's the paradigm. That's the way out of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. How do you then have conversations on a college campus? That you're, say again? I, let's say I don't believe in a two-state solution. Let's say. Hypothetically, and I'm on a college campus, and people are talking about peace between the Israeli-Palestinians. How do I talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on campus? You get what I'm saying? In other words, if I say, "Well, I hate the, I don't believe in the two-state solution," I think most students on a college campus will say, "Oh, then you're not reasonable." Is that fair? Is that fair to say? Most people in America or a European campus, as will, as will often happen. You have your right and left extremes end up coming together um, in many different ways. So you have to talk about when you when you say that, are you talking from the right wing perspective or from the left wing perspective? Explain. So the right wing perspective, uh, which is um, one we'll hear 
not so uncommon today, a lot, a lot more frequent than you, you, know, you would have heard it a decade ago, is let's annex either the settlements or even the whole West Bank and give the, I'm talking now at least, let's talk about people who are, who are concerned about people, not saying like transfer, throw people out. And let's give... Within the political mainstream. Yeah. Let's give the... Palestinians in the West Bank, the same status that Palestinians in Jerusalem have, which is a resident status, which gives them all, all the benefits of citizenship, except two major things. They don't get an Israeli passport, and they don't get to vote in national elections, but they can vote in local elections. So they say, let's give the, let's give the Palestinians in the West Bank those residency status, and then 10, 15, 20 years we can reassess. But, but uh, we'll annex it, and then they'll have all the basic rights, and then Israel will go back to um, administering everything that's happening in the West Bank. So that's the right, the, what we call the right side of the, the fence. The left side of the fence says it's really time to start talking about a, some kind of binational state. However, again, we're talking about Israelis, not uh, Israeli Jews. Um, some left-wing, uh, not that Arabs, Palestinians and all don't talk that, but uh, that's our focus. Left-wing Israeli Jews say, listen, the truth is democracy is primary, um, and therefore, we're not a democracy as long as we are uh, administering the territories without giving equal rights to the people living there. So let's just give them equal rights, and then we will work it out, and then basically we'll become a binational state. And what's so bad about this? We'll be a democratic binational state, and we'll still be many large amounts of Jews here, and we can still have Jewish you know, symbols and all kinds of different things, though maybe the some things would have to change, like the flag and the national anthem, but... In essence, it's the idea. So one is really pitting democracy, you could say, versus the Jewishness of the state. Democratic nature of the state versus the Jewish nature of the state. And that's how you sort of see the argument is often played out. Do you want a Jewish state and give up on your democratic values, or do you want a democratic state and give up on your Jewish values? And do you think either of those ideas are mainstream within Israel or outside of Israel? No, I don't think they're mainstream, but I just want to say one more thing. The two-state solution from all right, that, that goes from the left center to the right center all says we want both Jewish and democratic, and therefore we need to work out a two-state solution. Therefore we'll sacrifice land. Right. There, sorry, right. Therefore we'll sacrifice land. So in that triangle sort of, uh, of dem- democracy, land, or Jewishness, you have to give up on something. With roughly 7 million Jews and 7 million Arabs living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, something's got to give, either Jewish, democratic, or land. So, and so those are the, I think, intelligent people can reasonably disagree based on their own particular ideology. But my question, but you're not, you're not addressing my question, really. No, so, the, so the two-state solution has been, is really the mainstream primary uh, answer to this debate since at least 1937. Um, it, are any of those mainstream? No, I don't think they're mainstream, uh, even on college campuses, any other than the two-state solution. But I think one can reasonably argue it if one's on campus um, by setting up that paradigm, by understanding that those threes are in challenge. And, and the Jewish state, the, the, those who want to argue for a one-state solution based on the Jewishness of the state and making a residency as opposed to a, a full citizenship um, can make a reasonable argument based on Jewish history, based on, on uh, uh, Jewish, Jewish national rights and, and intentions, um, and e- even precedents. I don't know if it's as easy to make, certainly in the climate. It would, one would have to really know their stuff, let's say. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess I'd be skeptical that an average... Look, I'm not European, and uh, unfortunately, I'm way too uh, you know USA-centric in my thinking. But I, I guess I would find it hard to imagine most American kids on college campus raised on a diet of Jefferson and Madison saying... Okay, so it won't be a fulfilled democracy. You know, I guess that's a reasonable alternative. I think you have to you have to 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 speak to a Western audience. You have to put democracy. You you can't talk glibly about sacrificing democracy to make a state work. I think that sounds. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, scary, suspicious, dangerous. You know, there are those who really talk about national narratives and that Jews are, you know, an indigenous people who have national nar- their narrative here and they have the rights. And they're, they're, I have some students, I think, who could intelligently speak about that. Um, I, You know, again, it's not, it was not certainly an easy... Like Marine Le Pen? <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, I think the left-wing one of a binational state is an easier argument to make. Well, that I think your, your, your audience would be very appreciative because it wouldn't be based on ethno-nationalism. It would be based on political legal equality. And it's the one that sacrifices ethno-nationalism, I think, is a much easier sell in the current zeitgeist on university campuses than the one based on choosing ethno-nationalism over democracy is, I guess, my, my central concern. Yeah, I think that, though, you will run amok of the other Jewish the Jewish establishment, and I mean not even the Jewish student establishment on yeah, campus, yeah. if you, to push that. In other words, you may be a little bit easier to talk to the, your SJP people, right. but you will find it more difficult to talk with your friends from Hillel or, um, you know. I, I think you'd have trouble in Hillel would be my guess, but we, we would like to hear from people out there in the world to let us know uh, what they think. I, I think it's. I think it is important to explain to people that if you're down on ethno-nationalism and you dismiss it as important and you deprioritize it to the point that it no longer matters, that's how you end up with Marine Le Pen or other right-wing nationalist politicians who are speaking to a segment of the population that are not willing to sacrifice their ethno-national identity. And if the mainstream isn't giving them a healthy alternative of, don't worry, we'll protect our cultural character, then they will turn to demagogues who are willing to compromise democracy. I mean, we see that split a little bit in Israel, right? I, I think so. Um, it was in the last elections, when there was this big talk of, you know, the separation between the centers like Tel Aviv and even Jerusalem and the peripheries. Um, and ethno-nationalism is not dying a quick death, as many, I think, tried to predict yeah i think i think that's what they thought would happen in the 21st century but i guess you and i are just bigger fans of uh the golden mean or rambam's shvila zahav or however you want to say it uh so, so let's if we could turn this back so what would, what advice would you give to the new administration coming in trying to restart a peace process that's honestly happening. that's really what's happening honestly i would say stop what i've said all along stop talking about getting a peace deal and it's easier than you think and start talking about how can we improve the relationship so that we can build a relationship of cooperation and trust that means on the israeli side working to help the palestinians build not the physical infrastructure but the political infrastructure for a state and working on the palestinians saying ladies and gentlemen you guys want a state 
what you've got operating here is not the setup to be able to run a state. You have an immoral kleptocracy that won't hold elections because they lost the last one and didn't step down from power, and they're just holding on for dear life uh, militarily if need be. And it's time for you guys to create the political, social infrastructure for living as a peaceful society alongside the Israelis. And if you can't get a commitment to that from both sides, then you have to pressure both sides to honor their commitment. If I was the American president, that was what I would openly be pursuing and not talking in these abstractions like peace, the peace deal. You just said what Palestine, what about Israelis? I would say to Israel, look, make sure your roads are, are facilitating a future Palestinian state. Make sure your sediment building is restricted enough to allow for the possibility of a healthy Palestinian state. Uh it's not an look I'm not saying this is my position I'm saying in American interests what I would be arguing is let's start working on incentivizing you know uh, more Palestinian buildings so that they can uh, uh, look forward to the day you want to give them and and let's create uh, and this Netanyahu has talked about let let's create business and economic incentives and let's build factories you know, for Israeli businesses in the West Bank so that Palestinians can work and then feel a sense of kinship and cooperation where we're, we're working together, we're living together. I would be pursuing improvement. I would be talking about the steps. I would be talking about the tactics that can improve the relationship and change the culture rather than, you know, within a year we'll get... I, I never understand that pie-in-the-sky language. I think I think it's unproductive. So let me push you back for just for a second. What you hear from Palestinians is pretty much the continued building in the settlements is a clear indication that Israel has no interest in a an, a, an agreement where there's going to be a two state two state solution. That, that's a fairly consistent. Um, claim that they have against Israel and Israel just today in the paper I saw announced that the newest settlement is being approved the one instead of Amona that whole Amona thing that we've talked about in the past um, would you you said you would you know encourage Israel to limit settlement would you yeah I would encourage anything anything would you encourage Netanyahu even given to, to go back to that like you did in the Obama administration of a settlement freeze no, I would I would say don't worry about freezing Jewish settlement. Worry about supporting uh, you know Arab building, so that if the Arabs feel that they're going to be able to build and grow and do what they need to do for their own expansion, they're not going to be jealous, and they see their own roads and their own electricity and their own water and their own their own infrastructure plugging in and coming along. So they're not going to be well. How come the Jews get as much? It'll 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 change that conversation. I don't I don't think we have to worry about how many Jews are moving in if Arabs are comfortably building and expanding. Also, that's what I would say if I was on the American side. Okay. All right. So that's it. So all we got to do is take over the world, and uh, everything will be good. All right. Vote for Alan. But Alan again is my boss, so I guess it has to be vote for. I would have to be vice president, wouldn't I? I think you. I think I would vote for you as president. Uh, so you want to switch for that? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Mike for president and Alan for vice president. And that has been, this has been uh, the first stop in our campaign for president of the United States where we don't want to live anymore because we are much happier living here, although we both uh, are patriotic Americans. Definitely don't want to run for Israeli politics. Oh, dear Lord. I don't even want to run for politics anywhere. Anyway, 
Uh, add this to the list of Jews who think they know what they're talking about and can save the world. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. We actually, I have to say, have gotten fewer response lately. I mean, it's been a little quiet, the, uh, the feedback. I guess summer, you know. I guess, but come on, be nice to us. We're 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 like you know. Think of us like your elderly grandparents. Just give us a call once in a while. It doesn't have to be you know every week. Think of your cuckoo, be like your cuckoo uncle. As opposed to your we are cuckoo uncle. So do us a favor. Uh, send you can you can find contact uh, either on our Facebook group, the Teachers Lounge, Ju Israel, the Teachers Lounge. Uh, it's the Teachers Lounge podcast. I think is our Facebook group, and you can always find us at our website. JUIsrael.JerusalemU.org, which I can't stand that URL. Um, but just give us a little feedback, and we would love to hear what ideas you want to hear from us this summer. We're already working on what uh, what we're going to be uh, pushing out in the future. We see the downloads, so we see people are enjoying it, and we're very happy that our downloads are growing. But we would also love to hear uh, actual thoughts and ideas from you guys. So, thanks so much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And bye-bye.